Well, good morning. I fear for those of you who don't know me uh, that that clapping has oversold you. <laughs> so uh, so uh, please don't set the bar too high for me. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, flip to Philippians 1. If you need a Bible, they'll be on at the end of your rows in those little baskets. Um, but if you ever hear I'm preaching, uh, just go ahead and flip there. So you may have noticed the theme if you've been here for uh, uh, any amount of time with us and that I've been preaching uh, that we go through Philippians. Uh, the reason for that is I love this book. Um, I love the whole Bible. I'm supposed to say it. Uh, but no, I do. I love the whole, but I, I love the book of Philippians. It's so rich and, and, and it's filled with joy. It's filled with just the realities of the Christian life and, and the fullness therein. And so that's why I love to spend time in it. If, if you are looking for something to read during your personal devotion time, your, your quiet time with the Lord, uh, whatever that may be, I encourage you to, to check out Philippians. Um, but while you're heading there, I want to look at the context of the letter to the Philippians. So this church is in Philippi, which is the very first church to ever be planted in Europe. And so uh, it's hard for us to think about because Europe is full of churches now. Uh, they're, they're old, they're historic, and so, but for us, this, this idea of the very first church is kind of weird, but this is the reality of the church of Philippi. They're, they're kind of this pioneer church in Europe. Uh, and, and so they'll consistently support Paul throughout the rest of his missionary journeys. Uh, and so then he writes this letter, which is about 10 years after planting the church, to these, these dear friends that he has, these people that he loves and that he's excited to write to, and, and he updates them to a situation uh, in the first part of chapter one, which is pretty terrible. Um, and he's even like, you know, I'm writing you this letter and I'm writing it in a jail cell in Rome. And so that's going to bring us to where we're at today. We're actually going to pick up in verse 27. Uh, so if you want to join me, Philippians chapter one, verse 27, the words of the Lord here. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a sign, a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul's going to wrap up chapter 1 with this pretty rousing call to unity within the church body, right? Saying, listen, I know persecution, I'm suffering it, but you, you guys are suffering it as well, so, so we can be unified in that. He gives us his view of Christians as, as these people who are locked side by side in arms, kind of facing down suffering. And he reminds them, he's like, hey, live for the gospel in all that you do. And then he closes with this really encouraging truth that all things are working because God has called them to. And there's a lot to look at here. We could spend a couple weeks here, but I just have today. And so I want to focus on one theme in specific, and that theme is going to be unity, particularly what unites us and why we're called to be united. So those are the two questions that we're really going to look to answer through our text today as we unpack it. So, so why does it matter? I mean, why do we have to learn about biblical unity. Look around, right? I mean, we, we live in a divided world. We live in, in a fallen and a sinful world that tries to shred and kill and destroy any type of unity that we find. If you turn on the news for 30 seconds or just don't, you know, swipe to your, your app on your phone. I mean, I mean, we're all painfully aware that we live in a divided country. Many of us know what it's like to be raised, and also know what it's like to experience now a divided home. And we all know in one aspect or another what it's like to live with a divided heart. 
And yet in all that, even though there's this division everywhere, the gospel and Paul specifically here will say, I want you to be different. And I want to dive right into that and start looking at that. And we're going to begin with our first point in that we're united by the gospel. Point number one is that we are united by the gospel. This is from verses 27 and 28. And that we as Christians, we are first and foremost called to be united in the gospel. As Paul tells us in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, all those old things that you used to use to identify yourself and identify those around you, those don't distinguish us anymore. So ethnicity, nationality, gender, social status, all of these things will fall away in the face of the gospel. And that's why racism and sexism and hatred of any kind is so vile and ugly and sinful before the Lord. Because what it says is that what makes us different actually matters more than what unites us in the gospel, in Christ. Now this isn't to say that all those things don't matter, because they do. But what it means is that in the gospel, we are one people and one family. And and, and so, but the question becomes, what makes the gospel so life-changing? What makes it so difference-making that all of these other things that the world uses and that we've used to identify ourselves, why does it fall away in the face of the gospel? Why is that? It's the good news. It's the news that we were once dead. Citizens of the of the world, where we were identified by our, our flesh and our sin against God. Now, we didn't, just, we didn't just make mistakes. We weren't just doing bad things sometimes, but overall pretty good. No, we, we were citizens of the kingdom of evil, and we wore it really well. But, but God, out of an abundant love and mercy, sent Jesus Christ to live the life that we were supposed to live to die the death that we deserve to die, to take that price for our sin and to call us into new life. Saying to us, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And when that happens, Scripture tells us in one of my favorite verses, it's 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So meaning, uh, the, the, who we once were, that's done away with, it's gone. And, the, and then behold, right? Which is basically this way of saying, like, stop. Listen to this. Like, put down your spaghetti. Put down your phone. Like, stop what you're doing. Like, listen to what I'm about to say. The new has come. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Realize that. You're a new creation. All sin, all failure, all identity, all of these old things are gone, and we have become new people. That's the truth in this gospel. And being a new creation, we are no longer citizens of the world. But as Paul will say later in Philippians, it's in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
So all of these old things, all these old identities, while they may have been important to us, while we might have even loved them, they don't compare to this. They don't compare to the treasure that's worth giving up everything for in Christ. This king who chooses to make us members of his kingdom, even though we were the very ones who fought against it. And so when we understand that we're united in the gospel, this passage sets out to give us two places where that really matters. And if you look there, it says, of one spirit and one mind, which sounds great. It sounds like a Bible verse, but it does not sound like something we say today, right? And so, so we, we have to ask, like, what does it really mean to be of one spirit and one mind? And I'm glad that you did ask, because we're going to talk about it. Um, and so these, these are two subpoints They'll be on your screen. But the first of those is that we are a family. We are a family. As one spirit, the church is a family, which is why scripture authors will often write to the brothers and sisters. And now, like any family, it has its quirks, right? Look around. <laughs> and so, but we are a family, nonetheless, as a church body. And as a family, we are called to support and care for one another. Helping each other stand firm. And now this is where we see the real importance of being part of a local church community. Because if you never really commit to your family, do you love them? I mean, would you really let me sit here and claim that I love my wife and daughter if I came around once a month to see how they were doing? Stuff good? All right. I'll, I'll see you when I can. And I'm just really busy. Uh, no. No. How can you properly support them? And how can they actually care for you when you need it if you're an absent member of that family? And this, this, is, a, this is a vulnerable spot. This is a hard spot to be in where we can and most likely will be hurt. But just as we deal with hurt in our physical family, we have to deal with it in our church family. We have to stand firm together. And, and, and this isn't some magical statement that I'm making or that Paul's making that makes all of this, this pain and hurt go away. But the truth of it is, is that what unites us in Christ has to mean more. It has to mean more than, than, than just this one time and I'm out. And then the second way that Paul gives us is that we are a body. The second way we're united in the gospel is that we are a body. With one mind, we strive together as one body. Scripture will often refer to the universal church, the capital C, church, as the body. And like a body, we're not all exactly the same, right? I wore short sleeves today so we can all agree I'm not the muscular arm of the body, right? I don't carry any of this in. Um, and so, but if, if you ask my wife, I'm probably more of the mouth of the body. Um, but she's not here, so <laughs> she's dealing with the baby. Um, and so we as Christians in the church, we have these different roles and these different gifts. And they're beautiful and wonderful and great because we get to work together with all of those to make the church go farther than we ever could if we were all the same. In the same way that the legs help the body get where it needs to go, but the eyes help it see the way. And this really starts to matter in that a healthy body works for the same goal, right, of the same mind. 
Have you ever tried to run down the stairs with your eyes closed? You'll find yourself at the bottom a lot faster than you intend. And, <laughs> right? Your body is not working out for you right then. And, and so in the same way, if when, when our immune system is attacking our body, we know things aren't right. And so when the church doesn't act as a family and as a body, we do more than just hurt each other. Because we do hurt each other. We distort and disfigure the gospel. The very thing that we claim unites us as a people. So it's not going to be easy, and I'm not going to sit here and lie to you that it is, but we have to fight to be united in the gospel above all else. And being united in the gospel, it's, it's, it's more than just a country club where we all have the same smoking jackets, right? I mean, a lot of us have that t-shirt, but, you know, and, and, and it's not like an HOA, right? Praise the Lord for that. Um, and, but it's even more than like the support group where, we, where I can identify with you and you can identify with me because we, we go through the same struggles and we know how life is for each other. No, it's more than that. And the reason for that is because of verse 29. Look again with me. Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So what makes this different than anything else is our second point for today. That we are united by the Father. We are united by the Father. This is verse 29. God has granted to us to believe in Christ. But by the working of the Holy Spirit, which is something that Paul will mention in chapter 2, he, he has caused this well of faith, this well that wasn't there before, he's caused it to spring up in us and has brought us into this, this single faith under this single God. And yes, suffering has been granted unto us as well. But the suffering isn't without purpose. Look again at verse 29. What's it for? For the sake of Christ. And to continually unify us as we've talked about. Because for, for Christians, we have to understand suffering isn't just on the table it's not just an option that might come. It's not like a buffet where if you take this, you take that. Like it, no, it's promised. I mean, just look to Paul. Like we said, he spent the first half of chapter 1 telling them how awful his life is. Right? And we know from other parts of Scripture that the Philippian church itself, who he's writing to, they dealt with extreme, extreme poverty and various other types of persecution. So they know what he's talking about. But when the church is united in the gospel and by the gospel, suffering will become this, this forge where that unity is strengthened like nothing else. The Father uses our faith and that suffering to cleave us to one another, right? to, to make us fall into one another, hold fast to one another. And that's what I love about verse 30. Because what Paul's saying there is he's saying, listen, I know the junk of this life. I know the mess of this life. I'm in it with you. But Jesus is worth it. So he's, he's worth it. And that's an idea that will set up the rest of Philippians. But if we look to Galatians, we see that we're called to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, burden is a load that is too great to bear on your own. It's too much to carry by yourself. 
And that's where the imagery that Paul's giving here of, of these Christians striving side by side is super encouraging to me, right? That the idea that, that when the burdens of life, these things of life are just crushing me and weighing me down, and I, I just, I, I can't do it anymore. I'm out of gas. Right? That people will come alongside of me and help me push on and help me carry through. It reminds me of a story in Exodus 17 uh, where the Israelites are going out to battle. Uh, and, and if you're here with us, normally we're going through Exodus right now, so we'll get there soon. So this is a bit of a spoilers. But um, so, so it's in Exodus 17, and the Israelites, they're dressed to impress. They're about to go out to battle. So Moses is there. He's up on this hill, like mountain thing off to the side. And, and, and so they go out to battle. And Moses, being the dude that he is, just kind of puts his arms up. And, and they start to win. And he's like, okay. And so he's there, but he's old. <laughs> and, and so his arms get tired, and then they drop. And as they drop, the Israelites start to lose. And so then there's a less enthusiastic, like, okay. And, and so he, he throws his arms back up, and, and, he, and he's got his staff there, and, and they start to win. But then he gets tired. He, he's in his 80s, right? Battles take a long time. And, and so, so after a while, they, they start, surely but slowly, they start to drop. And then he's watching the very people he's called to lead and protect die in front of him because he can't hold up his arms. But then these guys, Aaron and her, they run up alongside of him and they grab these old man's just frail arms and they just hold him up until the battle's won. That's what the church is supposed to be. Do you realize that? That's what the church is supposed to be. Even though I, I, I know I have people relying on me, and I, and I have to do it. And, and, and I'm out of gas, but I'm, I'm still going. I'm still holding up my arms. But there comes a point where I just, I can't, I can't, you don't understand. I can't do it anymore. The, the, people are supposed to come alongside of you and just hold you up until the battle is over. That's love. But then the natural question, if we think about that long enough, is, is why? Why do we read in that verse that for has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake? Why can't it just stop it that it's been granted for us to believe? Like, why couldn't the Holy Spirit be like, that's enough, just, just leave it there, right? And, well, 1 Peter 5 gives us the answer. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So why has suffering been granted to us? So that the God of all grace can himself, hear me on that, can himself, not outsource to some guardian angel or whatever, but himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And because that point is true, we can endure the third point for this morning. And that we are united by suffering. Point number three, we are united by suffering. This is verses 29 and 30. And, and we, I, I know we've already looked at this some, uh, but this is, a, this is a heavy topic, and it's not one I just want to handle carelessly. Um, and it's one that's laced throughout the context of Philippians and Paul's life. But it, let's, let's be real and bring it to today. Suffering is laced through all of our lives in one way or another. But also hear this, that God doesn't just stop at suffering uniting us to the church. 
which is still good and it's great and it's wonderful, but there's more than that. Because not only are we united to the body through suffering, we're united to Christ as well. As Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so this is one of those verses where we can consciously agree with, like we know, like that's a good verse, right? And, but at the same time, the back of our mind starts to say, like, does Jesus really know? I mean, like, he's Jesus. Like, does he really know what it's like? Because if we're honest, suffering is when God feels most distant, when Christ feels most distant from us. I mean, he, he's the Christ. He's the sovereign. He's the king of all kings. And I'm just over here. And while that's true, this is also the Christ. The only begotten Son of God, despised and rejected by men. Men who he handcrafted, who then beat him beyond recognition. A man of sorrows well acquainted with grief, who is betrayed by those closest to him. Sold for a bag of change. And watching his best friends deny him to his face. Carrying a tree that he called into being up a hill. Leaving this this line in the dirt as he drug it. And then bleeding to death on an earth that was solely created to glorify him. One from whom men hide their faces. Abandoned by those he loved in his hour of greatest need and forsaken by the Father. Now in all of this, he he is taking the punishment that, that I deserve and that you deserve and that all of us deserve for our sin. That should be you. That should be me. But at the same time, he is experiencing suffering to a greater degree than all of us collectively could even begin to fathom. And so just just think about that, that that at your weakest and most desperate of moments, God himself is able to draw near to you and say, I know. I know. I know. If, if what we just looked at with the church sharing burdens was love, what word begins to describe that? I don't have it. I mean, that's not, the rest of our time isn't talking about that word. I, I, I can't even begin to describe that for you. What could be more comforting than the maker of heaven and earth knowing exactly what you're suffering and crying out to you through this book, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you are a Christian, if you believe in Christ as your only hope in life and in death, this is a promise to you. This isn't like a wholesale, like to the whole world. No, like this is an individual promise to you if you are a Christian. 
There's a, a, a book by the Puritan uh, John Bunyan. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. Don't try to say it ten times fast. Um, but, but in it, there's, there's a man named Christian, and, and he's heading to the celestial city or heaven. And so, but as he's on the way, he's ever since he's left on his trip, he's had this burden on his back, just like we talked about. And it's just, it's, it's ugly, it's heavy, it weighs him down, and he can't get rid of it. And so this whole trip, everywhere he goes, he's like, can you please help me with this burden? To which most people say, no, nah, sorry, that's not my thing, man. I, I can't help you. Some people say they can, but... It turns out to be a lie, and he just gets led further and further off and is more and more tired because he has to get back on, on track. But, but there comes a point where, where he reaches the top of this hill, and, and he is just exhausted, and he's tired, and so he just, he just falls to his knees. And, and then he looks up, and you know what he sees? He sees the cross. And as he sits there and as he stares at the cross, that burden that has weighed him down for so long falls off with the slightest of ease and is swallowed up completely. Church, there are so many of us that sit in this very room listening to sermon after sermon and go to Bible studies and and whatever, exhausted from the burdens that suffering has placed on our backs. Behold, right? Stop what you're doing. Behold the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And your suffering too will be swallowed up completely. Maybe not today. Maybe not the way you would want or that you would think it should be. But whether on this side of eternity or the next... This is the only place in all of creation that can ever make and keep this promise. But doesn't this seem really opposite of our church culture today? Right? Because suffering is more than this, this problem to be solved rather than this way to be united to Christ and his church. It's more of a hurdle, right? We'll help you get past it. The world says it, it doesn't make sense to have your perfect God in charge of all things over here and, and not a perfect life, right? So what's up? And we start to feel that tension of like, maybe this does make, doesn't make sense. Like, like, why is that? Well, you're in good company. David felt the same thing, and he writes in Psalm 42, because those people around him are like, dude, look at your life. Where is your God? Have you ever felt that? And so what we end up with is these false teachers who will jump in the gap and they'll start to say, hey, just believe more, just a little bit more. Maybe buy my book and you'll pray the right prayer. If you follow these steps... Sow a seed, they say. Then I'll help you and God could give you all you could ever want or need. 
And no matter how badly we want to cling to that and, and how much we want it to be true, you and I both know it's a lie. Just as we looked at it, it's a distorted and disfigured, ugly gospel that gives no one hope. Here's what the Bible says about suffering. Because if we're honest, you know what happens when we follow that? Where we go from one empty well to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. We just get tired. So here's what the Bible says about suffering. These will be on your screen. In Acts 5, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, that being the name of Christ. In Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And in 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So when God is allowing suffering in our life, he's allowing us to be united closer and closer to the church and also to his son. But here's where all all this talk of this turns from darkness to light. And the true meaning of this unity begins to be revealed to us. Romans 6.5 For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And later in 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So these current sufferings, they may be great, and they may be terrible. They are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Because we are united to Christ in a resurrection like his, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things, hear it again, have passed away. Find hope here. Quit running to to empty wells, thinking they're going to give you something different than last time. Run to this well that will never run dry and will actually, for once in your life, will satisfy you. God has united us through belief and suffering to this Christ and to this hope. If you have yet to make your faith in Christ and trust in him as your only hope in life and in death, do so today because suffering is going to come. Have a hope when it does. Have courage for he has overcome the world and all the sufferings in it. And if we're united to Christ, I know we read this a few weeks ago, but it, it, it fit too well not to use it here. I ask you with Paul, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you catch that? Nothing. Period. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your grace. We, we are weak people in need of a strong God. And you, the all-sufficient, all-powerful, needing nothing from us, and we have nothing to offer, you still look down at us with grace. And with love. And even though we are the ones who are responsible for our sin, and we are the ones who have sinned against you, you send your son with a message of hope. So, Lord, help us run to this well that satisfies. And help us forsake all those empty wells that give us nothing but, but exhaustion. Give us this hope. Remind us that the truth of the gospel doesn't die in these pages, but is, is in our life. And that no matter what comes, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let that be our prayer today. And we pray all these things in Christ's holy, redeeming, righteous, beautiful, and satisfying name. Amen.